Playlist with Ben and Fiona. That for me is the iconic score. Right. Welcome to The Playlist, where we talk about movies and TV shows that are worth your time. I'm Fiona Williams, and I'm joined by my co-host, albeit remotely, SBS channel manager, Ben Nguyen. Hey, Ben, are you there? Hey, Fee, I am here. I know that you spent the last weekend heavily involved in uh, a round of new drawing. (laughs) Yeah, you could say that. Um, Yes, I was involved in the production of Life Drawing Live, running website duties on that, and Pose Cam, if people are aware of that. So that was the Australian version of Life Drawing Live, but we've got another couple coming up on SBS in the next two weeks, which are the UK versions of the same thing. So I hope you're all drawing all the nude models and improving your art skills in this pandemic. Yeah, it was a very enjoyable activity. I had a household full of people all um, drawing nudes, not drawing in the nude, just to clarify that. Yeah, that was a good way to start the week. And uh, speaking of the week, um, let's take a look at what we've got ahead. So we have Lin-Manuel Miranda breaking with history in the Disney Plus release of his Broadway hit, Hamilton. And we're checking out America to Me and Disclosure in What Have You Been Watching? And War of the Worlds and the works of composer Ennio Morricone as our weekly picks on SBS On Demand. There's a lot. Let's get into it. The Hamilton, let's start there, mm. uh, sort of huge Broadway hit. Were you uh, buying T-shirts, you know, <laughs> flying off to Broadway or the West End um, for a front row seat? Sadly, no. Singing no, along see, to the soundtrack. No? No, I wasn't lucky enough to have seen it live. You know, I'm aware of it as a cultural moment but, you know, hadn't experienced it myself. Until now, and now it's in my lounge room. I can stream it. So uh, yeah, now I've res- now I fixed that. Um, so now I can understand what all the fuss has been about. Yeah, I feel like I'm I'm on the same page. Why don't we um, hear a bit of the tunes that have made this show so famous? How does a bastard, orphan, son of a whore and a Scotsman, dropped in the middle of a forgotten spot in the Caribbean by providence, impoverished and squalor, grow up to be a hero and a scholar? The ten dollar, founding father without a father, got a lot farther by working a lot harder, by being a lot smarter, by being a self-starter by fourteen. They placed him in charge of a trading charter And every day while slaves were being slaughtered and carted away Across the waves he struggled and kept his guard up Inside he was longing for something to be a part of The brother was ready to beg, steal, borrow or barter Then a hurricane came and devastation reigned Our man saw his future drip dripping down the drain Put a pencil to his temple, connected it to his brain And he wrote his first refrain, a testament to his pain Well the word got around and said this kid is insane man Took up a collection just to send him to the mainland Get your education, don't forget from whence you came And the world's gonna know your name What's your name man? Alexander Hamilton My name is Alexander Hamilton And there's a million things I haven't done just you wait, just you wait. So for those who don't know, and, you know, this is a period of, of history fairly unfamiliar to me. Same. 
To be honest, I, I felt uh, going in, oh, this must be um, easier for Americans to follow because, you know, at least they've studied some of this history in school. But I, I listened to an interview with Lin-Manuel Miranda, the creator and star of, of the musical Hamilton, and he was talking about how when the show moved to the UK, people said, oh, will they get it because they don't know American history? And his big point was... Americans don't know their own history. Don't take that for granted. So um, there's a lot to get your head around in terms of who these people are and, and the role that they played. But broadly, Alexander Hamilton was a immigrant, as is sort of made clear through the show, to the US. And he had an important role as particularly someone who had a real gift with the written word with first the War of Independence against the British and then kind of setting up the 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 new this new country and he was the first head of the treasury and had a formative role in setting up Wall Street. So this all sounds very dry. <laughs> Super fun. Um, but I suppose the point of this show is it's a history lesson that is anything but dry. Absolutely, yeah. No, it's, the skill is making all of what you just explained then interesting and beyond that, exciting. <laughs> mm. Yeah, and like it is a musical, wall-to-wall music. There's no spoken elements in this. Yeah, and I think there's there's a couple of elements that I guess sort of make this feel quite groundbreaking that, that gave it this level of attention when it launched in 2015. And that is... Firstly, to have all these white characters, the Founding Fathers, played by people of colour. And the second is the influence of particularly hip-hop um, in the music. And, I mean, there's, there's, there's hip-hop, um, there's strong elements of slam poetry, um, mm. and there's sort of also sort of more traditional kind of show tune musical numbers. Um, yeah. All of those have, have influenced uh, Lin-Manuel Miranda, who, who broke through with his first musical, In the Heights, which was a bit more autobiographical about the Puerto Rican community in Washington Heights, sort of north of Harlem, but more recently became very well known for the songs that he wrote for the Disney musical Moana mm-hmm. and has kind of been a a kind of recurring guest on the talk show circuit. So so his renown has grown and I think he is very brilliant and his um, his use of language and wordplay is really mm. what makes a lot of these songs really special. I totally agree on that, yeah. And just the skill for the the cast to be able to, like there's a lot packed in. Like you, like you say, it's got roots in hip-hop so it's, it's a two and a half hour, I think it is. Um, mm. You know, the, just the the deliveries, and you, you know, you need to capture up, if, especially if you don't know the subject matter. <laughs> you're trying to understand the plot points. Um, like it's amazing, and it, it's um, like you do hang on their every word, but the diversity, I guess, is the word I'm trying to find in the range of music that that's um, on the stage is really refreshing. It's something you know we haven't seen, and uh, like I get what the fuss was about now. <laughs> yeah, I think sort of as a film production. This, this is sort of pretty bare bones. It sort of feels to me like like maybe sort of about five cameras, kind of a, a sort of wide shot and a couple of angles from the side. And then, you know, you can sort of tell that they've done some steady cam, close-up stuff without an audience, but 
predominantly it's all been filmed with an audience. Yeah, and you hear them at various points. You do hear some audience. Um, yeah. Big claps and laughs at certain line delivery and whatnot. I think they shot it over three nights, three performances. But, yeah, there's there's one where it looks like the camera's actually on stage and I'm thinking, what's that yeah, like Yeah, I think they've cheated that <laughs> stuff a little bit. Yeah. But broadly I think it's fair to say I've seen more elaborate films of stage productions than this. Uh-huh. I think this is sort of uh, just really trying to give you the experience of of what it's like to be in the audience more than anything. And and I would say that it probably suffers a little bit from, again, just not having that live experience so that there's sort of maybe a, a degree of separation, I felt, just sort of having this live production mediated by the screen. But that's mm. a sort of small quibble. Yeah. I mean, I don't think it's any making any pretense that it's like a film adaptation of the story. It's literally no. they are filming the, the production. Um, and, of course, you know, we do get um, in cinemas when when we get to go to cinemas, um, we get like the National Theatre productions come and do the, do the rounds of cinemas here and I think they do really well, especially yeah. for shows that don't travel. Yeah, and I think if you hear it's like a filmed play, you might think, oh, it's a camera up the back and it's <laughs> like yeah. fixed or something. Like it, it, there is a lot of multi-cameras as we're getting to. So, yeah, I think for the fact that it is filming a play on stage, it is quite a vibrant um, production. So I've seen a lot of talk of, you know, especially on Twitter, where else, but um, that, you know, hopefully this can lead to more of the film productions or everyone should just go through their archives to find more filmed plays. But it's like, I mean, this one's Disney money and, like, I think it was, you know, it's quite an undertaking to have filmed three different versions of it to cut it all together to make it this much of a production. So while, you know, to what you were saying, like, yes, there's areas where it could have felt a little more alive, I think um, this probably raises the standard as well for what people might expect of seeing quote-unquote filmed plays. (laughs) Yeah. No, it's a good reminder actually what you said about the popularity of um, film stage productions now in cinemas, that it's a sort of mm. central part of the movie business now, mm. particularly for independent cinemas. And I guess it's sort of also a reminder of the fact that we're, you know, cinemas are coming back, but we're still locked out of theatres for the moment. Yep. Um, and, you know, not only does that have an impact on our arts industry, but we're being deprived of these fantastic productions. So it is a time for us where hopefully we can access more of those. A reminder that there is an opportunity to access them. For example, yeah. I um, saw last year the Murals Wedding musical okay. with music from Kate Miller-Heidke and, and loved it. And that's something I would love to be able to see on a screen again. Mm. See, I haven't. Muriel's Wedding is one of my all-time favourites, so I've sort of been a little bit reluctant to see how it might be translated. But, yeah, okay, that, that gives me hope that you loved it. <laughs> so I hope to see it one day. Yeah, no, I, I heartily recommend it. Lin-Manuel Miranda I think is a brilliant writer and composer. I would say he's sort of pulled off the Jerry Seinfeld technique here of surrounding himself with <laughs> performers with a greater level of talent than himself. So his his singing range is not... And and the tone of his voice is not the same as on the same level yeah. as, as some of those other supporting cast. But yeah. some of the supporting cast are really extraordinary performers. They're incredible. Yeah, just some of the numbers. And, yeah, <laughs> I'm glad you mentioned that. It was so, ah. Yeah, I mean, he's good, but then, you know, a couple of numbers, they come and just blow things out of the water. And also, I mean, 
With Hamilton, this has always plagued the production that, well, it plagues any kind of anything that claims to be history. Um, he's taken some liberties in the adaptation as well in telling the life of Alexander Hamilton. So watch it knowing it's a dramatisation of a life. It's not all in all a history lesson in and of itself. So it illuminates moments of history. But, yeah, I think it always should, you know, like a film is never the perfect record of, of the times in which that it's depicting. Yeah, it's a good impulse to then go read up about the people in more detail. It, it's yeah. made me more interested than I ever thought I would be in that period of American history. Yeah. But I, I think there's a criticism that it plays into the sort of great man, you know, kind of version of history. And I don't completely buy that because I think that that criticism indicates that, you know, if you are coming from a progressive perspective, you shouldn't tell these stories at all, which to me then just seeds the ground to conservative storytellers. Mm. So I think I think there's definitely a role for a revisionist take on these significant figures of, of history, which this definitely is. I think there's another criticism which maybe has more weight that Lin-Manuel Miranda minimises some of the damaging things that Alexander Hamilton did, like uh, contributing to genocide of Native Americans and sort of perhaps underplays the contribution of some of these founding fathers to slavery, Um, although sort of slavery is a a subject that, that does get raised and talked about within the musical. Yeah, it, it doesn't interrogate that at all. And, yeah, that, that's what I was sort of getting at, that, you know, he married into a family that was known to have slaves and that's not at all addressed. But Lin-Manuel Miranda has said nothing's off the table to be criticised. But, yeah, it's important to take it, watch the, watch the film, but also read up and just get a more well-rounded understanding, I think. Yeah, and I think I have to give a lot of credit for that choice to cast people of colour in mm. these leading roles. And I think despite the fact that there are some real stars that he's cast, I, I think Leslie Odom Jr. as Aaron Burr I thought was incredible and David Diggs has sort of become a bit of a, a star out of this as well who plays dual roles including Thomas Jefferson. But um, mm. what it does is it's more than colourblind casting and I, I have a lot of problems with that term. Um, But, you know, sort of maybe I would describe this as colour-conscious casting and it does give um, an opportunity for performers where, you know, if there's this sense of of having to cast a historical inaccuracy, these performers wouldn't get that opportunity. But then I think it does make you, because of the colour of their skin, it foregrounds race and issues like slavery in a way that goes beyond the text of the the musical yep. itself. And I, I, and I don't want to sort of completely defend the musical, but I think that, that race and issues like slavery are ever-present purely because of who we're seeing on the stage. And I think um, yep. the final song is about who tells your story yep. through history and the play is very conscious about who is it that tells our history, from what perspective are, are we being told these stories so it, I don't think it I don't think it tries to hide from that yeah no I think it's all part of the part of the conversation there's actually a really good quote from um Christopher Jackson who plays the George Washington role I'll just read it in full like and he's very good a, too I he's, for him. yeah 
He's, when I was thinking of the main set of pipes, like it's uh, <laughs> he's mm. a, certainly some of them. Renee Elise Goldsbury is amazing too. Mm. Um, but Christopher Jackson was he says on the casting, it was a very powerful choice to take the idea of these men and present them through the bodies and vessels of black and brown actors. It represents the fact that our role in building this country has never truly been acknowledged and I think it opened up the audience's minds to the spirit of what these men meant, even if they were woefully incapable of living it out in their own experiences. I thought that was a good uh, encapsulation. Yeah, and I think I suppose at the end of the day with a musical, if you're stuck with the tunes playing around and around in your head for days afterwards, then you must be onto a winner, and that's certainly the case with me. Yeah. So that's Hamilton, and it's out now on Disney+. Plus. So tap your toes along to that one. So now we come to the part of the show where we talk about what we've been watching. Ben, what have you been watching? Well, I feel like I can't get away from the subject of race at the moment. But I I am going to recommend a 10-part documentary series that I just watched over the weekend on Stan. It's from a couple of years ago. It's called America to Me, and it's made by Steve James, the American filmmaker best known for Hoop Dreams, the um, much beloved, again, a, another film about race, about uh, young African-American basketball players attempting to break into the NBA. And really he's made a career out of telling stories about race and social justice around his, his native Chicago. And this series follows a number of students that attend the Oak Park High School over one year of their schooling. And they're a, they're a mix of different ages in different years, but they are all black students. And this area is quite interesting because it's, it's had a reputation as being a very progressive part of the US, this particular area and having a, a very integrated school. But you begin to see through the series that a lot of that is fairly superficial and actually the issue of American segregation sits deeper within this school experience so that the school has a sort of tracking system. I think we might call it streams in, in Australia, but sort of different academic levels. And the normal level here at the school, they call college prep. Um, so sort of the idea that you're sort of preparing yourself for, for college, but then they have honours level and they have AP, which is sort of the kind of advanced academic program as well. And even though the school is 50-50 white and people of colour students, the higher level academic levels are dominated by white students and the college prep level is dominated by black students. And a lot of the teachers talk about the phenomenon of white flight occurring within the school itself so that white parents don't want their students to um, share classes with black students because of this idea that it'll drag down their academic performance. And the outcome of this and what gives rise to the documentary in the first place is that there's a growing gap between the academic outcomes of white students in the school and black students in the school. So for a school that sort of prides itself and an area that prides itself on racial equality and integration, this is a bit of a wake-up call and this drives mm. the, the documentary. 
But what you get is almost a lot of documentaries in one. So one thing that astounded me is the amount of resources in this school. And there's about, I think, 3,000 students drawn from a very wide area. So I think that's a very different experience to our Australian education system. So you kind of imagine it's actually having a lot of high schools combined because they're all coming from a wider dispersed area. And it means, you know, they have a big stadium for their football team. They have big gyms. um, They have all these different programs. They have like a slam poetry program. And there's almost a whole documentary within the documentary of the slam poetry team going up to the national champs. And there's almost a kind of bring it on um, storyline with um, the cheerleading team. And fascinatingly, there are kind of two cheerleading teams and one's predominantly white and one's predominantly black within the same school. But at the end, what really draws you in is these characters and these sort of, you know, really beautiful young students, so passionate, a lot of them coming from a a lot of disadvantage. Their parents have made a lot of sacrifices to get them to this school. They're just very sweet and uh, their stories are very heartbreaking in some cases and, and you really want them to succeed. And I found myself being completely hooked and having to watch all 10 hours in one sitting. Mm, wow, that, that really speaks to it, doesn't it? And sorry, where did you say we can watch that? That's that's all out on Stan. Yeah, um, right. And and I, I know I've spoken already a lot about this, but the other key characters are the teachers and the inner workings of the politics within the teachers and the management of the school. Um, we talked about sort of a, a few episodes ago, bad education, um, yeah. and there's elements of that that you see here, um, sort of maybe not the same level of corruption, but certainly this feeling of disconnection between a lot of what the teachers are trying to achieve and what Mm. the kind of school um, at the management sort of superintendent school board level are are trying to do. Yeah. You know, when you were describing it, I thought of that as well when you were saying sort of the the white flight element of they're not getting the right grades or the neighbourhood or something, it doesn't reflect well on on them to have their kids attending this school. I just, yeah, I went straight to, <laughs> to bad education, our conversation there. Completely. And in bad education, it, you know, it's fictionalised, but it was based on a real story. But yeah. the school board was heavily invested in trying to maintain property prices in the local Absolutely. area. And that's a real consideration in this as well. And there's a lot of frustration from some members of the school community that there's a, an obsession with building a new swimming pool for the high school because this is a, a fairly wealthy area for the most part. Wealthy white families right. live here and um, there's this real fear that if they don't provide all these facilities for wealthy white families that those families will end up sending their kids to private schools and this public school is going to miss out. So um, there is this obsession with what can we do to look after the kind of wealthy, gentrified members of our community. And then there's a kind of policing of what happens with some of these poorer black students who some of whom there's a fear that some of these are coming from inner city Chicago or Southside Chicago into this area and don't actually belong. Mm. Um, and uh, it's just a lot of elements of what we're seeing play out in the US writ large. Yeah. No, it was, I mean, it sounds like there'd be a lot of coded conversations as well, like the use of terms like inner city kids. And like it sounds like the conversations would be quite interesting to 
to observe. Yeah, I mean, it was filmed about four years ago. Mm-hmm. And I mean, it's just a reminder, you know, then all, all the kids are wearing Black Lives Matter t-shirts, you know, that, that that's been a long struggle oh, yeah. and maybe gaining a bit of momentum for change now, but, um, but it's still very, very relevant. Mm. Um, I think I may have made it sound a bit like homework and it came up on a list of you know, I think that there's a lot of lists going around at the moment of content you should watch. And the point that the critic made was that it can sound, this show sounds like it might be homework, but it, it's not, you know, it's, it's really, uh, it, it's just a, a very compelling human story. Mm. So that is America to me. And that is streaming now on Stan. Um, and Fee, what have you been watching? Well, this is probably a good segue from yours, actually. Um, speaking of documentaries that might on paper read like homework but are really compelling and, and vibrant, I watched Disclosure, which is on Netflix. And this is a one-off doc, like it's feature-length documentary, that looks at um, representation of the trans community on screen, so through movies and TV shows. And in doing that, it shows the real impact, the real world impact, how the trans community is represented on screen. So, yeah, as I say, so more than reflecting social attitudes, um, it, it really does show how from the start of movies, start of moving pictures, representing from movies with scenes of cross-dressing all the way through up to present day with series like Pose, it, it shows all examples of how trans characters on screen in the best and worst ways are depicted and it really expertly uses montages. So there's, you know, there's a lot of scene after scene after scene, um, bad representations of um, other cross-dressing characters or, yeah, like um, trans people that have really long-lasting impacts and just feed this negative perception of what a trans person is because it also makes the point that there's not a lot of visibility in the community. So for, for many people watching something like Boys Don't Cry or watching a film or a really bad procedural TV show, that might represent your viewers' only experience of seeing a trans character. And for a person who is trans, it might be the only other person they see who's like them. And if that's really negative, then for all of the audience, it's just, it can really breed some horrific stereotypes. So, um, there's representatives of the trans community on screen. So there's writers, directors, actors, and it's executive produced by Laverne Cox, who we all know from Orange is the New Black, but, um, you know, a leading activist and, and spokesperson for the community. But also some of her forebears. So um, there's an actress called Candace Kane who she's had to play a lot of the terrible, um, you know, bodies on the slab, quite frankly, in procedurals. So like a Law and Order and SVU, just that, you know, the, the long line of... American US cop shows and she's very frank and really candid about having to be in the scene where there are really negative comments being made by the detectives and whatnot who just kind of treat uh, a trans character in a really negative way. So putting her, being able to tell her own story about what it's like to be in that room and what it's like to play those characters is really illuminating. So it's, look, I can't recommend this highly enough. It's warm and it's it is quite funny but it's extremely confronting but broadly it's got that message of just letting people tell their story and just filling the gaps to show just how to tell a story well you know 
Mm, yeah, I wonder if there's more willingness currently for people to hear stories from people outside of their own direct experience yeah. and their own worldview. I would, I'd like to think so. I hope so, yeah. I guess yeah. that what's really important is that media outlets give space to those stories, sort of where perhaps once upon a time they may not have done or they <clears throat> They may have done, as as you're saying, as disclosure demonstrates in a harmful way. Yeah, not for sure. Um, and then, you know, of course, in recent years, there, there has been a bit of a trend more to to more inclusive storytelling. So you do get shows like Pose, which has trans actors on screen. And I guess the part mm. of the point is as well, in some of the, the spate of films, just the trend of having cis actors play a trans character, you know, like Jared Leto winning his Oscar for, and Hilary Swank winning her Oscar, both for mm. playing trans characters, um, you know, and just reinforcing that damaging trope that in some way it's performative to be trans or, you know, it's mm. not really authentic. So just it, it really unpicks a lot of that. So if, um, yeah, I just encourage people to watch it and it might just fill in some of the blanks you might have had if, you know, you're just not really sure, just just watch it and really learn from it. I think it's, it's a really open-minded documentary that, it's kind of like a you can't ask that in some ways. Um, like it just really, frankly, put, puts it all out there to um, to just start a conversation, which can only be a good thing, I think. Well, I love you can't ask that, so I'm sure I will love Disclosure. And where can I find it, Fee? Oh, that one is on Netflix. Great. So now it's time to talk about some of the many, many gems that we like to uncover each week on SBS On Demand. And I would like to kick off with uh, a new show that's launching this week that is a remake, I guess, of an old favourite known as War of the Worlds. Mm. That can be right. What is it? There's no naturally occurring phenomena that can produce a signal like this. On Wednesday, Dr. Catherine Durand of the Irradiate Astronomy Millimetric detected a powerful signal. All the evidence suggests that the signal is indicative of intelligent extraterrestrial life. Does this mean that they're a threat? On a une multitude d'objets en approche. There's no evidence to suggest that. Surely it would be wrong to assume they aren't a threat. The government has responded by declaring a state of emergency. The voiture has a distance. Taxi! Take this, please. Just go. <laughs> Mom. Do something! What are you doing? You gotta come with me right now. Qu'est-ce qui se passe? Il va y avoir une attaque. So you, I know you've seen um, the first few apps. Right, Fee? Yes, I've seen a couple of them, yeah. Um, and a little shout-out, I did an interview with the um, showrunner of the show, so there's an article up at SBS Guide if you want to read that. Oh, excellent. 
Yeah, well, well, you might know sort of some of the thinking behind it better than I do then, but I, I, think, I think that there is a bit of a story that the H.G. Wells estate went into the public domain a few years back and mm. uh, immediately a number of productions went into development in order to exploit that still very, very um, popular and um, identifiable IP so we did get last year a British production which was sort of set in the period in which War of the Worlds was written that didn't seem to sort of make too much of a splash, but it was uh, sort of arguably sort of more closely related to the text of the book, whereas this sort of really uses just the, I guess, the concept of uh, interplanetary invasion as a kicking off point to tell pretty much a brand new story and the creator, Howard Overman, that you spoke with, um, he would be known to viewers for shows like Misfits that he yeah, previously created. Yep. And this is, I guess, sort of what we're increasingly seeing, which is a sort of trans-European production with the UK and France involved. And in part for that reason, it sort of splits the storytelling across those two countries and with a cast drawn from both French and, and British actors. Yeah. Now, when the aliens arrive and attack, um, we do see responses both sides of the channel. <laughs> mm. I think, you know, this is sort of a moody drama. I, I, I think it mm. does demonstrate a little bit of the, the kind of limitations of its budget. Um, if, you know, sort of if you're expecting like full extravagant, you know, sort of the Steven Spielberg War of the Worlds with Tom Cruise. This is not it. Uh, it quickly becomes a much more psychological drama about mm. the few survivors and the lengths that they need to go to in order to to live under this ever-present threat. And I suppose, you know, there's parallels to be drawn with uh, the current pandemic and, and mm -hmm. the way in which... Um, we uh, there's a there's a lot of fear about stepping into this world that we're living in that I think we all can identify with. Yeah, like even I'll draw on the conversation a bit, but even when I when I was chatting to him about it, he was saying that this is all pre-pandemic, obviously when it was made and when it first came out. But he said he was doing press for it, and um, everyone was saying, "Oh, is it a Brexit um, metaphor, <laughs> um, or is it is it a climate change metaphor?" Um, mm. And like the beauty of the source material is. Yes, and yes, and yes. So like it's all of it, really. So yeah. any kind of existential threat you perceive, it works for it. <laughs> so, mm. yeah, if you're worried about coronavirus, and aren't we all? Um, yeah, like part of the beauty of the concept is it's you can really put yourself in the place of the characters in the, in the show and just think, you know, if the aliens attack right now, literally what do I do? I'm, I'm right here. How do I get where I need to get to, to safety? Like you can, you can interrogate just... Your exit plan if you need to in a, in a scary way. Yeah, I think um, cast members that viewers will recognise, uh, Gabrielle Byrne um, is one in, in one of the lead roles, Elizabeth McGovern from Downton uh, is one of the leads and then the, the very hot right now, um, Daisy Edgar-Jones from Normal People, will uh, viewers will also recognise. And and the French cast, um, there's Leah Drucker, who um, you would know her face from from a lot of French films. Um, mm. Yeah, so there's 
an all-star cast of people fleeing the aliens. <laughs> um, and like you were saying, like it plays up more the drama than the special effects. It's not a huge CG extravaganza. It's kind of the tactic, again, with Spielberg, but with Jaws, you know, he didn't show the shark immediately. And that was kind of a budget thing, but also it worked dramatically to not yeah. show them, show the sharks so soon. But um, yeah, the idea of what are these aliens like is does linger across the first couple of episodes where <laughs> you just know the threat, you don't actually know what they look like, which, yeah, it's, it ratchets up the tension. I, yeah, I thought it was really good. Yeah. Um, so episodes are going out from Thursday, 9th of July. And uh, there'll be two episodes in the first week. Otherwise, they'll be dropping weekly after that. So that's um, Thursdays starting 8.30 and then going to 9.30 on SBS or up on SBS On Demand. So, yeah, I uh, encourage people to check it out. Absolutely. And for um, film fan as you are, uh, there was a, another great loss in the industry this week. Yes. Uh, yeah, very sad news. Uh, we lost Ennio Morricone, the late great film composer um, whose credits are too numerous to mention. But yes, uh, sadly, he passed on. He was 91, had a, had a good had a good run. Mm. But yeah, nonetheless, quite sad. But I, I am always loving the tributes that flow once there's once there's a big, um, a big loss. And yeah, there's just really warm remembrances from all sectors of the film industry, because he's list of credits you know his resume I guess is what the word I'm seeking across so many genres and countries and yeah he, he just composed so many films and a whole lot more that you may not be aware of that I wasn't aware of um yeah just big big loss and yeah um, huge huge talent and I I know um a favorite thing of yours to do is to revisit a title or two from one of these creators if we're sad enough to to lose them and what's caught your eye in terms of any of Morricone's work? Yes well um, of course I look to see what we've got at SBS On Demand um, I you know just kind of like what have we got I need to watch something so it's a list it's not a comprehensive list it must be said it's not the it's not the mission or the untouchables or the good, bad, the ugly, but or um, or hateful eight. Which, so have you gone for deep cuts? Yeah, yeah yes, that's why it's been. <laughs> We've gone for the deep cuts because everyone's watching others. <laughs> Um, well played. Uh, so we've got Once Upon a Time in the West. So there is a spaghetti western there. Um, mm. Absolutely dive in and enjoy the wonderful score of that. It's beautiful. We've got Bugsy, which was one of the films he was nominated for for an Oscar because famously he only won his Oscar a couple of years ago when uh, for, it was for The Hateful Eight, which is a brilliant score, by the way, mm. um, for quarant um, Quarantina. <laughs> <laughs> the That's Quentin a good name for a, for a movie season <laughs> for the time being. The Quarantino, yeah, uh, for Quentin Tarantino's uh, The Hateful Eight. Um, and while I've digressed, it always struck me that year of the Oscars that um, everyone was, well, Twitter was focused on will Leo finally win his Oscar, which he did, but it was like, Enya Morricone has not won an Oscar yet. Like, let's not all get in a flap about Leo finally winning his Oscar. It's like, Enya finally won his. Mm, true. Right? Anyway, they both walked away winners, so it's fine. Um, so where was I? Bugsy, Warren Beatty's sweeping 
biopic of Bugsy Siegel. We've got that at uh, SBS On Demand. Yeah, that's a great movie. Yeah, great score. And we've also got The Best Offer, which is a film by Giuseppe Tornatore, who Morricone worked with before he did the I'm Gonna Cry soundtrack for Cinema Paradiso, if Mm. you remember. Yeah, so they were frequent collaborators. So we've got The Best Offer. And just for something different, we've also got Danger Diabolique, um, which is a hell of a watch. It's um, Mario Bava's 60s, um, how do I even start to describe this? But it's kind of like a James Bond spoof, I guess, is a way to spin it. Um, well, you remember Danger 5, the SBS series? Yeah. Yes. Owes very much to Danger Diabolique. <laughs> um, oh. It's all miniatures and, you know, kooky 60s music. Yeah, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense, but it's a wild ride and the music to match. So, it's, I'm uh, in. You've won with yeah. me over. There you go. You're welcome. <laughs> so, yeah, that, they're the ones we've got at SBS On Demand and I encourage you to watch all the others, uh, you know, like the greats, like The Mission. Again, he didn't win an Oscar for that, but The Untouchables, The Good, Bad, The Ugly. Um, yeah, yes. go on, I, have I feel a, like that, that for me is the iconic score. Right, yeah. <laughs> But I remember at school, the mission, that music to me takes me back to school rather than to the movie because <laughs> our we had compulsory reading time that always piped that music over the um, the AV to signal the start and finish of our of our reading time rather than have someone come over on the AV and say, start your reading, finish your reading. We'd play the, um, the beautiful strains of the mission soundtrack. <laughs> oh, right. So that's how I remember that The influence that, uh, that school had on you, Fee. Yeah, the music or from the movies that had the impact <laughs> on me in school, <laughs> more like. Great. Well, um, yeah, I think jump into the, the podcast notes to to see the list of all those titles, but otherwise uh, jump straight into SBS On Demand and seek those out. Yes. All right. Well, that's it for the show for the week. Make sure you listen to SBS The Playlist wherever you get your podcasts and give us a lot of stars and leave us a nice review because it helps people to find the show. And you can let us know what you thought of the movies and TV shows we discussed on Facebook or Twitter at SBS Movies. I'm on Twitter at Ben Nguyen TV. I'm on Twitter at Anything But Fifi. And The Playlist is produced by Jeremy Wilmot. Until next week. Thanks for listening. 